Chapter 2 of The Story of a Whim by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter 2 A Christmas Box That Didn't Match. The young man, still insisting that the freight wasn't his, followed the agent reluctantly over to the station, accompanied by several of his companions, who had nothing better to do than see the joke out. There they were, a box, a bundle, and a packing case, all labeled plainly and mysteriously, Christy W. Bailey, Pine Ridge, Florida. The man who owned the name could scarcely believe his eyes. He knew of no one who would send him anything. An old neighbor had forwarded the few things he had saved from the sale of the old farm after his father and mother died. And the neighbor had since died himself, so this could not be something forgotten. He felt annoyed at the arrival of the mystery and didn't know what to do with the things. At last he brought over the wagon and reluctant pony, and with the help of the other men he loaded them. Christy Bailey didn't wait at the store that night as long as he usually did. He had intended to go home by moonlight, but decided to try to make it before the sunset. He wanted to understand about the freight at once. When he went back to the post office, he couldn't sit with the same pleasure on a nail keg and talk as usual. His mind was on the wagon load, so he bought a few things and started home. The sun had brought the short winter day to a sudden close, as it has a habit of doing in Florida by dropping out of sight and leaving utter darkness with no twilight. Christy lit an old lantern and got the things into the cabin at once. Then he took his hatchet and screwdriver and set to work. First the packing case, for he instinctively felt that herein lay the heart of the matter. But not until he pulled the entire front off the case and took out the handsome organ did he fully realize what had come to him. More puzzled than ever, he stood back with his arms folded and whistled. He saw the key attached to a card, and unlocking the organ, touched one of the ivory keys gently with his rough finger, as one might touch a being from another world. Then he glanced around to see where to put it. Suddenly, even in the dull smoky lamplight, the utter gloom and neglect of the place burst upon him. Without more ado, he selected the freest side of the room and shoved everything out of the way. Then he brought a broom and swept it clean. After that, he set the organ against the wall and stood back to survey the effect. The disorderly table and the rusty stove were behind him, and the organ gave the spot a strange, cleared-up appearance. He didn't feel at home. Something must be done about the confusion behind him before he opened anything more. He felt somehow as if the organ were a visitor and mustn't see his poor housekeeping. He seized the frying pan, scraped the contents into the yard, and called the dog. The dishes he put into a wooden tub outside the door and pumped water over them. Then the masses of papers and boxes on the table and chairs he piled into the darkest corner on the floor and straightened the row of boots and shoes. Having done all he could, he returned to the roll and box still unopened. The roll came first. He undid the strings with awkward fingers and stood back in admiration once more when he brought to light a thick, bright rug and a Japanese screen. He spread the rug down and puzzled some time over the use of the screen. Finally, he stood it up in the worst end of the room and began on his box. There at last, on top was a letter, in a fine, unknown hand. 
He opened it slowly, with the blood mounting into his face. He didn't know why, and read, Dear Christy, you see, I'm so sure you're a girl my age that I'm beginning my letter informally and wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a glad, bright New Year. Of course, you may be an old lady or a nice, comfortable middle-aged one. Then perhaps you will think we're silly, but we hope and believe you're a girl like us, and so our hearts have opened to you, and we're sending you some things for Christmas. An account of the afternoon at the freight station followed, written in Hazel's most winning way conveying her words and ways and almost the voices and faces of Victoria Landis and Ruth and Esther and Marion and the rest. The color on the young man's face deepened as he read, and he glanced up uneasily at his few poor chairs and miserable couch. Before he read further, he went and pulled the screen along to hide more of the confusion. He read the letter through, and his heart woke up to the world and to longings he never knew he possessed before to the world in which Christmas has a place, and young, bright life gives joy. He read it to the end, where Hazel inscribed her bit of sermon full of good wishes and a prayer that the spirit of Christmas might reign in that home, and the organ might be a help and a blessing to all around. A look of almost helpless misery crossed the young man's face when he finished. The good old times, when God was a reality, were suddenly brought into his reckless, isolated life. He knew that God was God, even though he'd neglected him so long, and that tomorrow was Christmas Day. Seeking refuge from his own thoughts, he turned back to the brimming box. The first article he took out was a pair of dainty lavender slippers with black and white ermine edges and delicate satin bows. Emily Witten's aunt had knitted them for her to take to college with her. Since Emily's feet were many sizes smaller than her aunt supposed, she never wore them and tucked them in at the last minute to make a safe place for a delicate glass vase. She said the vase would be lovely to hold flowers on the organ on Sundays. The girls wrote their nonsense thoughts on bits of labels all over the things, and the young man read and smiled and finally laughed out loud. He felt like a little boy opening his first Christmas stocking. Christy unpinned the paper on the couch cover and read in Victoria's large, stylish, angular hand full directions for putting it on the couch. He glanced with a twinge of shame at the old lounge and realized the girls had seen his shabby belongings and pitied him. He resented the whole thing until the delight of being pitied and cared for overcame his bitterness, and he laughed again. A soft, restful green was chosen for the couch cover, it couldn't have fit better if Victoria Landis had secretly had a tape measure in her pocket and measured the couch, which perhaps she did on her second trip to the freight house. Ruth Summers made the two pillows, large, comfortable, and sensible, of harmonizing greens and browns and a gleam of gold here and there. With careful attention to the directions, the new owner dressed his old lounge and placed the pillows as directed, with a throw and a pat, not laid stiffly from a postscript in Ruth's clear feminine hand. Then he stood back in awe that a thing so familiar and ugly could suddenly assume such an air of ease and elegance. Could he ever bring the rest of the room up to the same standard? But the box invited further investigation. A bureau set of dainty blue and white, a cover for the top and pincushion to match, were packed inside, with a few yards of material and a rough sketch with directions for a possible dressing table to be made of a wooden box in case Christie had no bureau. 
It was from Emily Witten, who said she couldn't remember seeing a bureau among the things, but she was sure any girl would know how to fix one up and perhaps be glad of some new things for it. The young man looked helplessly at these things. He finally walked out into the moonlight and hunted up an old box, which he brushed off with the broom and brought inside. He clumsily spread the blue and white frill over its splintery top, then fumbled in the lapel of his coat for a pin and solemnly tried to stick it into the cushion. He was growing more bewildered with his new possessions. As each one came to light, he wondered how he could maintain and keep up to such luxuries. Mother Winship included a bright knit afghan, which looked perfect over the couch. Next came a layer of Sunday school songbooks, a Bible, and some lesson leaflets. A card said that Esther Wakefield sent these and hoped they would help in the new Sunday school. A roll of chalkboard cloth, a large cloth map of Palestine, and a box of chalk followed. The young man grew more helpless. This was worse than the bureau set and the slippers. What was he to do with them? He start a Sunday school. He would more likely start children in the opposite way from heaven if he continued as he had the last two years. His face hardened. He was almost ready to sweep the whole lot back into the box, nail them up, and send them back where they came from. What did he want with a lot of trash with such burdensome obligations attached? But curiosity made him return to see what was left in the box, and a glance around his room made him unwilling to give up this luxury. He looked curiously at the box of fluffy lace things with Marion Halston's card on top. He could only guess that they were some girls' things and wondered vaguely what he should do with them. Then he unwrapped a photograph of six girls, which was hurriedly taken and inscribed, Guess which is which? with a list of their names written on a circle of paper like the spokes of a wheel. He studied each face with interest. Somehow it was for the letter-writer he sought, Hazel Winship, and he thought he should know her at once. This would be very interesting to pass some of the long hours when there was nothing worthwhile to do. It would keep him from thinking how long it took orange groves to pay and what hard luck he'd always had. He decided at first glance that the one in the center with the clear eyes and firm mouth was the instigator of all this bounty. As his eyes traveled from one face to another and came back to hers each time, he felt more sure of it. Her gaze held something frank and pleasant in it. Somehow it would not do to send that girl back her things and tell her he didn't need her charity. He liked to think she'd thought of him, even if she did think of him as a poor discouraged girl or an old woman. He stood the picture up against the pincushion lace and forever gave up the idea of trying to send those things back. One thing more was in the bottom of the box, fastened inside another protecting board. He took it at last from its wrappings, a large picture, Hoffman's Head of Christ, framed in broad, dark Flemish oak to match the tint of the etching. Dimly, he understood who the subject of the picture was, although he'd never seen it before. Silently he found a nail and drove it deep into the log of the wall. Just over the organ he hung it, without the slightest hesitation. He recognized at once where this picture belonged, and knew that it, not the bright rug or the restful couch, or the gilded screen, or even the organ itself, was to set the standard henceforth for his home and his life. He knew this without its quite coming to the surface of his consciousness. He was weary by this time, with the unusual excitement of the occasion, 
he felt like a person suddenly lifted up a little way from the earth and obliged against his will to walk along unsupported in the air. His mind was in a whirl. He looked from one new thing to another, wondering more and more what they expected of him. The ribbons and lace for the bureau worried him, and the lace collars and pincushion. What did he have to do with such things? Those foolish little slippers mocked him with something that wasn't in his life, a something for which he wasn't even trying to find himself. The organ and the books, and, above all, the picture seemed to dominate him and demand of him things he could never give. A Sunday school, what an absurdity! He! And the eyes of the picture seemed to look into his soul and to say, quietly enough, that he had come here now to live, to take command of his house and its occupant. He rebelled against it and turned away from the picture. He hated all the things, and yet the comfort of them drew him irresistibly. In sheer weariness at last, he put out his light and, wrapping his old blankets around him, lay down upon the rug, for he would not disturb the couch lest the morning should dawn and his new dream of comfort look as if it had fled away. Besides, how was he ever to get it together again? And when the morning broke and Christie awoke to the splendor of his things by daylight, the wonder of it dawned, too, and he went about his work with the same spell still upon him. Now and again he raised his eyes to the pictured Christ and dropped them again reverently. It seemed to him this morning as if that presence were living and had come to him in spite of all his railings at fate, his bitterness and scoffing, and his feckless life. It seemed to say with that steady gaze, What will you do with me? I am here, and you cannot get away from my drawing. It wasn't as if his life had been filled in the past with tradition and teaching, for his mother died when he was a little fellow, and the thin-lipped, hard-working maiden aunt who had cared for him in her place, whatever religion she might have had in her heart, never thought it necessary to speak it out, beyond requiring a certain amount of decorum on Sunday and regular attendance at Sunday school. In Sunday school it was his lot to sit under a good elder who read the questions from a lesson leaflet and looked helplessly at the boys who were employing their time in more pleasurable things. The very small amount of holy things he absorbed from his days at Sunday schools failed to leave him with a strong idea of God's love or any adequate knowledge of the way to be saved. In later years, of course, he listened indifferently to preaching. When he went to college, a small insignificant one, he came into contact with religious people, but here, too, he heard as one hears a thing in which one hasn't the slightest interest. He had gathered and held this much, that the God in whom the Christian world believed was holy and powerful, and that most of the world's inhabitants were culprits. Up to this time God's love had passed him by unaware. Now the pictured eyes of the Son of God seemed to breathe out tenderness and yearning. For the first time in his life, the possibility of love between his soul and God came to him. His work that morning was much more complicated than usual. He wasted little time in getting breakfast. He had to clean house. He couldn't bear the idea that the old regime and the new should touch shoulders as they did behind that screen. So with broom and scrub brush he set to work. He had things in pretty good shape at last, and was just coming in from giving the horse a belated breakfast, when a strange impulse seized him. At his feet, creeping all over the white sand in delicate patterns, were wild pea blossoms of crimson, white, and pink. He never noticed them before. Weren't they just weeds? 
but with a new insight into possibilities in art, he stooped and gathered a few of them. Holding them awkwardly, he went into the house and put them into his new vase. He felt ashamed of them and held them behind him as he entered, but with the shame was mingled an eagerness to see how they would look in the vase on the blue bureau thing. Will you walk into my parlor, said the spider to the fly, tis the prettiest little parlor that ever you did spy, sang out a rich tenor voice in greeting. I say, Chris, what are you setting up for? What does it mean? Ain't going to get married or nothing, are you, man? Because I'll be obliged to go to town and get my best coat out of pawn if you are. Oh, now that's great, drawled another voice in an English accent. Got anything good to drink? Trot it out and will be better able to appreciate all this luxury. End of chapter 2